Section three of the Crusades by George William Cox. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter two. The Council of Clermont. Part one. The Pope is the Bishop of Rome, and the traditions of the papacy delight in recalling the humble origin of the vast monarchy at once spiritual and temporal, ecclesiastical and secular if the poor galilean fisherman ever entered the eternal city it was as a stranger who would come to be the guide and friend of a small knot of men who saw and hated and wished to keep themselves aloof from the abominable corruption of roman society but if christianity itself as we have seen was when it had once taken root in the west modified by the popular feelings and old associations of the converts the constitution of the church was in like manner insensibly modified by the political forms of the state with which it had at first to wage a terrible conflict rome was not as other cities and the bishop of rome could not long remain like the presidents of other churches he was dealing with the subjects and he lived in the heart of the empire it was inevitable that the imperial tradition should fasten on the object of their worship nor was it long before the exulting cry went up to heaven christ lives christ rules christ is emperor christus vivit christus regnat christus imperat as the vicars of this invisible emperor the popes acquired gradually a power which overshadowed that of the mightiest sovereigns it was exercised with monastic austerity by gregory the great from five eighty seven to six o four it was wielded with the ability of a consummate general by gregory the seventh hildebrand from ten seventy three to ten eighty five the first gregory was a monk therefore also a manichaean in other words one who believed in the essential impurity of all matter but this philosophy if it had any attractions for gregory the seventh was wholly subordinate to the one absorbing passion of ecclesiastical dominion his aim was to subdue the world by a spiritual army but the issue of his conquest was not to be confined to spiritual influence it was to give him power over kingdoms dictation over princes the command of their weapons and their wealth it was to humble civil polity under priestly autocracy it was to prove what hildebrand scrupled not to assert that the civil rule was in itself the mere development and working out of the evil principle the foundations had long been laid but hildebrand left to his successors not much to do toward completing the fabric of papal empire his predecessors had learnt to avail themselves dexterously of popular feeling or the ambition of princes to direct widespread movements if not to create them it was the papal sanction which had aided to depose the degenerate merovingian it was the papal chrism which had anointed the first carolingian king it was the diadem of the ancient caesars bestowed by the hand of leo the third which rested on the head of charles the great it was hildebrand himself who by the hands of his instrument alexander the second had transferred the crown of england from the son of godwin to william the bastard of normandy it has been well remarked 
that although the name had not yet been heard yet in truth it was now that the first crusade was preached and it was preached by the voice of rome against the liberties of england we may note further that the preacher was a pontiff who, when he found it convenient to thank the Sultan of Morocco for some indulgences granted to Christians in his territories, could assure that infidel ruler that both worshipped the same God and held the same faith, although their modes of worship and their expressions of devotion might be different. The popes had become capable of setting vast armies in motion and of raising to a white heat the fire of a popular sentiment which had already been kindled these two conditions were needed before the power of europe could be precipitated on the infidel conquerors of syria and the inability of the popes to accomplish this end if they were not in accord with the prevalent feeling of the people is strikingly shown in the history of gregory the seventh eight years after he had helped to slay harold at hastings hildebrand in ten seventy four addressed a letter to all who loved and cared to defend the catholic faith beseeching them to put aside all other tasks in favour of the great work of chasing the hordes of the seljukian turks beyond the bounds of the eastern empire constantinople the new city of the seven hills was even now threatened by these barbarians nor could any say how soon the danger might not menace rome itself it could not be doubted that the faith the energy the warlike skill of christendom would sweep away these undisciplined unbelievers and the victory of the faithful would be followed by very solid gain to the popes the price to be paid by the emperor for his deliverance from the turks was his submission as a vassal to the see of rome in other words the pope was to become absolute lord both of east and west and the claims of the byzantine patriarch to a coordinate dignity with the successor of st peter should no longer be made with impunity but although the scheme thus carefully drawn out was to promote the interests of a spiritual power for the great mass of latin christians it was purely a political enterprise the fears and distresses of the eastern emperor could excite no sympathy the Caesar of Constantinople was not a being who had exhibited the image of superhuman love, or shed his blood for those who had taken delight in torturing him, and the excommunication which Hildebrand had imprudently hurled against the emperor Nicephorus III had left behind it in the east a feeling not favourable to the designs of the Roman pontiff. The letter of Hildebrand appealed to no religious associations, it said nothing of abominations committed in the holy places, of terrible crimes wrought on the persons of faithful pilgrims. It was silent about the eternal reward which the bare act of pilgrimage would win for the believer. It was of little use to say in passing that more than fifty thousand warriors longed to rise up under his guidance against the enemies of God and reach the sepulchre of their Lord. He had not struck the right chord and Hildebrand failed to see the West gird itself for the great conflict with the enemies of the faith. For a time he may have supposed that the great fire was already kindled, when, with a fleet of 150 ships and an army of 30,000 men, Robert Guiscard set sail from Brundusium, Rindisi, 
in 1081. But the conqueror who had done so much in Italy was to do but little to the east of the Adriatic. While his army put forth its whole strength before the walls of Dyrrachium, Dorazzo, his fleet under the command of his son Bohemund was miserably defeated, and nothing but the wretched jealousy felt by the emperor Alexios for his general Paleologos saved the army of Giscar from ruin and turned the threatened disaster into victory. When, being compelled to return to Italy, he left Bohemond to carry on his enterprise in 1082, the latter overran Epirus, and had well-nigh succeeded in reducing the Thessalian Larissa, when he too was compelled to hasten to Italy for reinforcements, both in men and money, in 1083. In his absence his deputy Brienne, the constable of Apulia, was constrained to abandon the siege of Castoria in 1085, and to bind himself not to invade again the territories of the Byzantine emperor. Not many months later, Robert Guiscard gathered another armament for the conquest of the East. He raised the siege of Corfu, and had reached Cephalonia, when his career was cut short by death, and his scheme for the time seemed utterly brought to naught. The war which Hildebrand sought to stir up against the Mohammedan powers was not less vigorously preached by his successor Victor III in 1087, who promised remission of sins to all who might engage in it, but his words called forth no bands of warriors for the recovery of Jerusalem. The fleets of Genoa and Pisa swept the African coasts, and gained in the shape of booty a harvest which was to fall to the lot of few among the myriads who were soon to leave their homes for the Holy Land. Ten years after the death of Hildebrand, in 1095, three or four thousand of the clergy and thirty thousand laymen were gathered to meet Pope Urban II at the Council of Piacenza. So vast a throng could find standing ground and no building, and the business of the council was transacted in the plain outside the city. The envoys of the eastern emperor, Alexias Komnemnas, were there to plead his distresses and beseech the strenuous aid of the faithful. The policy of checking the progress of the Turks while they were still at a good distance from Italy may have influenced the more statesmanlike of their hearers. The more vehement and enthusiastic among them were moved to tears by the pathetic recital of the Byzantine ambassadors and demanded loudly to be led against the enemy but Urban, with his heart more determinately set upon the enterprise than any man present, felt that the hour for the supreme decision had not yet come. He was in a country torn by intestine divisions, where his own claim to the papacy was disputed by an antipope, whom, with his adherents, it was here his especial business to excommunicate. He had to deal with other matters also. Some of the clergy still refused to abandon their wives, and the wife of the emperor, Henry IV, was present to complain of treatment unimaginably monstrous on the part of her husband. Both emperor and clergy must be condemned and brought into obedience, and Urban felt that after such business as this it would be well to reserve his eloquence for another scene. He therefore dismissed the envoys of Alexios with the assurance that when the hosts of western Christendom advanced to the rescue of the Holy Sepulchre, they would not forget that they had work to do near Constantinople. From Piacenza, Urban made his way across the Alps to the realm of the great Charles, 
whose intercourse with the ambassadors of the caliph harun al-rashid in seven ninety nine may have laid the foundation for the myth expanded into a systematic fiction in the lying chronicle of turpin that he had himself smitten down the unbelievers under the shadow of the church of constantine on the northern side of the alps urban could breathe more freely the sentence of excommunication was impending it is true over philip i who called himself or was called king of france but the great-grandson of hugh capet powerful though he might be within his own dominion of paris and orleans was little more than a nominal lord of the vast throng of feudal chiefs who lay beyond its borders from his old home in the great monastery of cluny urban set off in the autumn of ten ninety five for clermont in the territories of the count of auvergne before he could reach the city thousands of tents were pitched without the walls for those who would find no shelter within them and the eight days during which the council held its sessions were spent in regulating the enterprise about which the pope had spoken with so much reserve at piacenza and in prescribing the measures to be taken for the safety of those who might remain at home during the absence of their natural protectors there was now no more need for hesitation popular feeling to the north of the alps was far more deeply moved by the woes of the pilgrims and the conquests of the infidels than on the southern side of the great mountain barriers and the wrath of the people had been fanned into an ungovernable flame by the preaching of the hermit peter this man born at amiens in picardy had forsaken his wife and laid aside the sword which he had wielded in the service of the counts of boulogne to follow the counsel of perfection in silence and solitude like others he felt himself drawn by an irresistible attraction to the holy land but if his passionate yearnings were rewarded by the privilege of offering up his prayers before the tomb of the redeemer his very heart was stirred by the sight of things the mere recital of which had awakened his wrath at a distance the sanctuary was in the hands of the infidels the patriarch was reduced practically to the state of a slave and the pilgrim was happy who returned from the holy land without undergoing humiliations and buffetings scarcely deserved by the worst of criminals the murder of many christian men the deadly wrongs done to many christian women called aloud for vengeance and the hermit made his vow that with the help of god these things should cease his conversations with the patriarch simeon brought out only confessions of the incapacity of the greek emperor and the weakness of his empire the nations of the west shall take arms in your cause said the hermit and with the patriarchal benediction peter hastened to obtain for the mission which he now saw before him the sanction of the man who claimed to be at the head of eastern and western christendom alike before the roman pontiff peter poured forth his story of the wrongs which called for immediate redress but no eloquence was needed to stir the heart of urban the zeal of the pope was probably as sincere as that of any others who engaged in the enterprise but it could not fail to derive strength from the consciousness that whatever might be the result to the warriors of the cross his own power would rest henceforth on more solid foundations his blessing was therefore eagerly bestowed on the fervent enthusiast who undertook to go through the length and breadth of the land stirring up the people to the great work for the love of god and of their own souls 
His eloquence may have been as rude as it was ready, but its deficiencies were more than made up by the earnestness which gave even to the glance of his eye a force more powerful than speech. Dwarfish in stature and mean in person, he was yet filled with a fire which would not stay, and the horrors which were burnt upon his soul were those which would most surely stir the conscience and rouse the wrath of his hearers. His fiery appeals carried everything before them. Wherever he went, rich and poor, aged and young, the knight and the peasant, throng round the emaciated stranger who, with his head and feet bare, rode on his ass carrying a huge crucifix. That form of which they beheld the bleeding sign he had himself seen. Nay, he had received from the Saviour a letter which had fallen down from heaven. He appealed to every feeling which may stir the heart of mankind generally, to every motive which should have special power with all faithful Christians. He called upon them for the deliverance of the land which was the cradle of their faith, for the punishment of the barbarian who had dared to defile it, for the rescue of the brethren who were the victims of his tyranny. The vehemence which choked his own utterance became contagious. His sobs and groans called forth the tears and cries of the vast crowds who hung upon his words, and who greedily devoured the harrowing accounts of the pilgrims whom Peter brought forward as witnesses to the truth of his picture. Motives more earthly may have mingled with his austere call to the minds of some who heard him. Of these motives the hermit said nothing. But there is no doubt that he made his last and most constraining appeal to that notion of mechanical religion which the prophet Micah puts into the mouth of Balak, the king of Moab. The consciences of some amongst his hearers might be weighed down by the burden of sins too grievous almost for forgiveness. He besought them to remember that such fears were altogether misplaced, if only they made up their minds to take part in the redemption of the Holy Land. If they chose to become the soldiers of the cross, their salvation was at once achieved. There was no sin, however fearful, which would not be cancelled by the mere taking of the vow. No sinful habits, which would not be condoned in those who might fall in battle with the unbelievers. The excitement of the moment, the frenzy which first unsettled the mind of the hermit, was by him communicated to his hearers, through, we cannot doubt, a specious colouring over a degrading morality and a hopelessly corrupting religion. But as little can we doubt that the whole temper which stirred up and kept alive the enterprise left behind it a poisoned atmosphere, which could be cleared only by the storms and tempests of the Reformation. The preaching of the hermit predetermined the results of the Council of Clermont, but Urban and the throng of bishops and abbots who were gathered round him were well aware that something more was needed than the enlisting of an army of zealots for distant warfare. With our settled laws and orderly government, it is almost impossible for us to realize the condition even of the most advanced states of Christian Europe in an age when the power of the king over his vassals meant simply that which the strength or the weakness of the vassals made it, and when the vassal, if he owed allegiance to his lord, was bound by no ties to his fellow vassals. The system of feudalism could not fail to feed the worst passions of human nature, and the absence of an authority capable of constraining all alike involved for those who felt or fancied themselves aggrieved 
an irresistible temptation to take the law into their own hands but the practice of private war thus set up would sooner or later assume the form of a trade and in the words of william of malmesbury things had now come to so wretched a pass that feudal chiefs would take each other captive on little or no pretence and would set their prisoners free only on the payment of an enormous ransom this military violence of the laity was accompanied by corruption on the part of the clergy showing itself in a shameless traffic of benefices and dignities which in brief phrase fell to the lot of the highest bidder in such a condition of things to drain off to distant lands a large proportion of the men who at home might do something to check if not to repress the mischief would be to leave those who remained behind defenceless decrees were therefore passed condemning private wars confirming the truce of god which suspended all hostilities during four days of each week and placing the women and the clergy under the protection of the church which in an especial manner was extended to merchants and husbandmen for three years when the business of the council being ended urban ascended a lofty scaffold and began his address to the people he spoke to hearers for whom arguments were no longer needed but who were well pleased to hear from the chief of christendom words which carried with them comfort and encouragement three forms or versions of this speech have been preserved to us one in the pages of william of tyre a second in those of william of malmesbury a third from a manuscript in the vatican it is possible that they may represent three different speeches but the substance of all is the same and we are left in no doubt of the general tenor of his words with some inconsistency he dwelt on the cowardice of the barbarians who had contrived to conquer syria and whose tyranny called forth the appeal which he now made to them the turk shrinking from close encounters trusted to his bow and arrow and the venom of his poisoned shaft not the bravery of a valiant warrior inflicted death on the man whom it struck their fears he added were justified for the blood which ran in the veins of men born in countries scorched with the heat of the sun was scanty in stream and poor in quality as compared with that which coursed through the bodies of men belonging to more temperate regions in these temperate regions you were born he pleaded and you have therefore a title to victory which your enemies can never acquire you have prudence you have discipline you have skill and valour and you will go forth through the gift of god and the privilege of st peter absolved from all your sins the consciousness of this freedom shall soothe the toil of your journey and death will bring to you the benefits of a blessed martyrdom sufferings and torments may perhaps await you you may picture them to yourselves as the most exquisite tortures and the picture may perhaps fall short of the agony which you may have to undergo but your sufferings will redeem your souls at the expense of your bodies go then on your errand of love of love for the faithful who in the lands overcome by the infidel cannot defend themselves of love which will put out of sight all the ties that bind you to the spots which you have called your homes your homes in truth they are not for the christian all the world is exile and all the world is at the same time his country if you leave a rich patrimony here a better patrimony is promised to you in the holy land 
they who die will enter the mansions of heaven while the living shall behold the sepulchre of their lord blessed are they who taking this vow upon them shall inherit such a recompense happy they who are led to such a conflict that they may share in such rewards it was no wonder that words thus striking chords of feeling already stretched to intensity should be interrupted with the passionate cry it is the will of god it is the will of god which broke from the assembled multitude it is in truth his will added the pontiff and let these words be your war-cry when you unsheath your swords against the enemy you are soldiers of the cross wear then on your breasts or on your shoulders the blood-red sign of him who died for the salvation of your souls wear it as a token that his help will never fail you wear it as the pledge of a vow which can never be recalled End of section three